Welcome to The Gathering Pod, the audio version of my weekly gathering room broadcast. I'm Martha Beck. Hello! Oh, I suddenly look much closer to the screen than I did before this call started. I mean this broadcast, of course. There we are! Hi! How is everybody? We are here on all kinds of media. This is The Gathering Room, which is now, I don't even understand it. It's on Instagram, it's on Facebook, it's, there's a garage band thing involved. I, I, I'm in so deeply over my head. All I'm really going to do is like blink in Morse code, help me. I'm in a technological fortress I cannot escape. Hi everybody, I'm Martha Beck and you're in the gathering room and I love having you here. And oh, oh, look, look here. This is where I've been sitting to do interviews because... I have a book coming out. It's called The Way of Integrity. And um, can you see it? Instagram people can't really see it. Anyway, I've worked on this. This book was a long time coming. I worked on it for like five years. And I'm really quite pleased with it, if I do say so myself. And I've never said that about a book before. Anyway, uh, it's coming out on April 13th. And I want to invite you all to come to hang out with me and Liz Gilbert on that day. I think we'll be on Facebook, right? We're having, no. Oh, you have to buy tickets, but they're not very expensive. And you get a book and it's wondrous. So you can come to sort of our book club and it'll be super fun because I wrote the book during the, uh, well, leading up to the COVID lockdown and during the lockdown, uh, Liz, of course, wrote like 12 books, some of which she may publish or not. Anyway, she read me a novel that she'd written We'd call each other and I read her The Way of Integrity in several drafts. (laughs) So it's going to be really fun to launch the book with Liz. And I think we want you all there. It would be so much fun. So please come along. And now for today's topic, which, oh my gosh, you guys, I am so excited. At the end of last week's call, someone said to me, what are you reading these days? And I was like, oh my God, I'm reading this book by a guy who was the FBI's top hostage negotiator. His name is Chris Voss. And it's all about how to negotiate. Negotiate as if your life depended on it. Uh, The title is Never Split the Difference if you want to get the book. You guys, I've read psychology books my whole life. And I know this, The Gathering Room was meant to be sort of a spiritual thing. But for me, psychology and spirituality, they munge together. Because how can you have a psyche Psyche means soul in Greek. So how could you have a psychological self without a soul self too? So they all munge together. And it's very rare for me to read a psychology book that teaches me to do something that I've desperately needed to do often, but I've never heard anyone explain it before. And to have it laid out really clearly, oh my gosh. So the reason I want to talk to you guys about it is that from, you know, our conversations, I see your comments, we go back and forth, I get to this sort of, like, I see you, even though you don't talk back to me in this forum, except through the, the chat and the texting and whatnot. But I figure, and I think I'm right, that most of us here, and I will own this fully, are kind of raging codependents. <laughs> and what that means is we're here to help. There used to be a cartoon cat who was super codependent and his whole, I forget what his name was, but his whole motto was, it never hurts to help. And then he would go try to help someone and invariably get very badly hurt, either directly by the person or by the situation. Anyway, that's codependency. 
People who are addicted to drugs are dependent. People who are trying to help the people who are addicted to drugs or to insanity in any form, we're the codependents of the world. And it's great, makes you a very caring person, except it can burn you out. It has all the disadvantages of addiction without the fun of getting high or drunk or whatever. So it just sort of drags you down and it's kind of dismal. But your prognosis for getting well is very, very high because you take responsibility for all your actions, which a lot of addicts, you know, between the chemicals and a mindset, they don't do that. So I always assume I'm talking to a bunch of codependent people like myself, and I mean that as a compliment. And all my, all my self-help is written to those, to us. But here's the thing, and I wrote about it in a book once called Steering by Starlight. I wrote about this three, there are three psychiatric diagnoses that are known as the dark triad. And the diagnoses, if you look at the DSM-5, are um, narcissistic personality disorder, uh, Machiavellian personality disorder, and psychopathy or antisocial personality disorder. Those are the people, they're like serial murderers and whatnot. Now, this category of people is very puzzling. And whenever I write self-help about it, in, in Steering by Starlight, I called it, borrowing from Harry Potter, Defense Against the Dark Arts. And all I was talking about was being able to pick up when you've got someone with one of these diagnoses in the room because they're fundamentally thinking differently than you are. Um, another great psychology book by... Uh, PhD at Harvard named Martha Stout. Um, she wrote a book called The Sociopath Next Door. And it was about how sociopaths are born without a conscience the way a blind person, someone, by, is, someone born blind is born without sight. There's no conscience at work. And so she tells all these stories about how psychopaths work. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example that's not from her book. It's from I heard that this was a question that the FBI used to identify psychopaths. Here's the story. A woman goes to her mother's funeral. And while she's there, she meets this man and they really hit it off. Like they just mesh and the sparks are flying. But she doesn't know him and in all the commotion, he gets away and she doesn't know who he was. The next week, she kills her sister. Why? And most people will go, like I can see people going, mur, mur, I don't know. And some people say, well, she's jealous of the sister. Maybe the sister was interested in the man. These are all sort of normal human um, rationalizations. And the answer, a psychopath or a sociopath, which is almost exactly the same. And ex the answer they give immediately is, well, if he came to the first funeral, he'll come to the next one and she can get his name. So for a psychopath or a sociopath, um, killing your sister is the equivalent of Googling someone's phone number. Like it, it has no emotional resonance at all. There's no empathy. So in narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy, there's no empathy. And what Martha Stout says, and I've read this in other places, is if you are dealing with a psychopath and you figure it out. Then they lie flawlessly. They're the only people who can lie without changing their heart rate or anything so they can pass lie detector tests and everything. But she said, if you realize that the biggest sign you're in a relationship with a psychopath is that you feel pity 
consistently for someone who's doing things that harm other people because psychopaths actually like to be pitied and no other type of person outside the dark triad enjoys being pitied. <clears throat> she said, so anyway, if you figure this out through circumstances or whatever, just get out. It's like a plane crash. You couldn't see it coming. Don't take anything with you. Just get out and be glad you're alive. And there's nothing you can do. So that's what I've been, I've basically been telling people, look for these, these sort of subtle tells that'll say if there's someone like that in the room and then just get, get away. But Chris Voss, back to him, the hostage negotiator, he's been dealing his whole career with people like terrorists who behead their hostages and things like really serious psychopaths. And and then at lower levels with people who are just nefarious and calculating in business and whatever. But he's done a million. And his ability to understand how to cope with this was so exciting to me that I feel right now, after reading his book three times, I actually feel safer than I've felt in the world for a very long time. Another great book, Gary DeBecker's The Gift of Fear. Similar, just lays out some stuff that we need laid out. Okay, so I wanted to tell you guys, it's an update on... Defense Against the Dark Arts. And when I called this how to handle problem relationships, I meant real problems. Now, for those of you who are going, well, I don't think my loved one is a psychopath or my boss or whatever. Just know that if somebody's in an addictive scenario, no matter what their addiction, it could be gambling as well as drugs or alcohol or whatever. Gambling does something to the brain that basically turns, or not gambling, addiction turns off those empathy circuits. And so a person who's in the throes of an addiction behaves like someone in the dark triad. So if you're with someone who's in an addictive pattern, and that's very common, they estimate one out of every 25 people is born a psychopath. And you know why? Because as bands of humans were uh, separated when it was more sparsely populated, there was a lot of homicide. There was a lot of warfare between small groups. And so the groups needed people who could kill someone from another tribe at lunchtime and have no trouble having dinner and going to sleep. And that's what a psychopath can do. Other people have more trouble when they kill other people. So anyway, um, here's what I learned from Chris. I just thought I can't conceive of how a psychopath would think. This is what I've learned. There are three levels to the brain. Maybe you know this already. It's in a lot of my books. The lowest level, level is sometimes called the reptilian brain because it thinks like a lizard and it's just fight, flight, fight, flight. Or wrapped around that, so that's the brain stem and then there's the reptilian brain. And then around that is the limbic system, which is the emotional brain and your dog and your cat and maybe even your bird has that. Um, so they think emotionally, anyone who's ever owned an animal knows they have emotions, horses, everything, but they don't think cognitively the way we do. So on top of the limbic system, we've got a layer called the neocortex where we use language and reason and mathematics and logic and bargaining and the things that we do with our brains. Now, here's what Chris Voss said that just changed. Well, he doesn't actually say this. This is my paraphrase of what I've learned from Chris Voss. When you're dealing with somebody who's crazy, and that could be an addict or someone from the dark triangle, the dark triad, you are not talking to a neocortex. This person will not respond to your reasoning, will not respond to your, your heartfelt requests, will not take your perspective 
unable to do so, okay? And I just thought, well, then what are you left with? Try to be nice? Well, then you're going to get completely taken for a ride, and I speak from experience. So I just ran away. But what you are dealing with is you're dealing with a limbic system and a reptile brain. So just take out the whole rational part of a conversation and think of it as you face-to-face with a large Komodo dragon, like a human-sized lizard. (laughs) Hello. And I got to tell you, I've worked with a couple of psychopaths as clients that I recognized were psychopaths sort of into the treatment for a while. And I can tell you, I had the oddest sense that I was, there was something reptilian about them. It was really weird. Um, But here's the thing. Animals respond to sensory cues and they respond to certain types of emotion. And this is what This is what every psychopath will respond to. And it's, Chris Voss boils it down to such simple steps. And he says there are four basic ways. I mean, he's a master and he takes it to a whole new level. But just as a beginner, there are four things you can do that will help you deal. It helps you talk a person who's in a dark triad into agreeing with you without knowing why they're agreeing with you. Because it's not logical. It's so simple. First thing. Use a low, soft voice, slowly, speak slowly, and end your sentences going down. He said, if you want to see the greatest negotiator voice in the world, watch Oprah Winfrey. She's so good. That's how she gets people to just tell her anything, right? She's so good at it. So that's the first thing is a voice. And he said, if you can get playful, if they start to trust you, start smiling and say, oh, you know you want to do that. And that, what it does is it triggers the amygdala to start trusting you. It sounds manipulative, but it's not because you're just talking in a low voice. You're not lying. The thing I love about Chris Voss is he's all about integrity. How you stay in your integrity while dealing with someone who has no conscience is fascinating. Second thing, always defer. So just starting everything you say with, I'm sorry, in a genuine voice, I'm sorry. What that does, it means that you're not going ego to ego because if someone's arrogant and obnoxious, what wants to happen for you is you get a, re- a mirroring response that says, how dare you speak to me that way? I'll speak that way to you. You get mad at me, I'll get mad at you. <laughs> and then it's just, it just escalates. Instead, you take the non-egoic perspective. Lao Tzu says all streams flow to the sea because it is lower than they are. Humility gives it its power. So all you have to do is say, I'm sorry. And then third thing, mirroring. You simply repeat two or three important words that sort of summarize their, what they just said. So you're, you're the most selfish person I've ever known. Someone may shout at you and you say, I'm sorry, the most selfish person you've ever known. And you, but you don't say it like, you're just like, oh, I'm sorry. And what that does is it makes them feel like now they're in charge and they start to settle down. And then the last thing, and you just keep repeating that. And it, it, I know from, from mirroring as a technique in therapy uh, that I use in coaching, that just mirroring someone is really powerful at making them feel heard. And that's another thing. He says you put full attention on the, the other person. You, you have no attention like on your own game. You're really focused on them in a genuine way. Integrity again. And I've learned that all you can 
that all it takes to get someone to feel really seen is if you just mirror it. It doesn't sound parrot-like. It seems like it will, but it doesn't. So you're a horrible person. You're the worst person I've ever known. I'm sorry, the worst person you've ever known? Yeah, you were bad to me. Oh, I'm sorry, bad to you? And you just, you just do that and maybe you paraphrase a little. And after a while, they start to run out of steam because their brain is now switching to feeling trust and to feeling domination. They feel like they're in charge. And then you do the last thing, which is another thing coaches do a lot, and it's perfectly in integrity. It makes people feel hurt. You label their emotional position at the moment. You're so horrible and blah, 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 blah. Oh, it sounds as if you really feel hard done by. It sounds like you really feel like I've, I've treated you badly. And you, you, you frame it as a question. And then, and they start to calm down almost magically. And he says, you can use it on a two-year-old. You can use it on a teenager because there's nothing, there's nothing deceitful about it. It's empathy in action. And the most interesting thing, I'm out of time now, I got to take some questions here. But the most fascinating thing about it is as he goes through story after story of dealing with psychopathic terrorists, it works on it works at a, an amazing level. There's a, a story he tells about a guy who, he was a terrorist who liked to behead his hostages. And um, they used this technique on the guy and he let an American hostage go. This was in the Philippines. And then he said, I don't know what you did. I fully intended to hurt him. And I just didn't do it. And I'm not sure why, but somebody over there deserves a promotion. <laughs> So it's very interesting. It's very convincing. I haven't found a psychopath in my house to talk to. We're under lockdown, but I can't wait to get out and start re-encountering psychopaths in the real world <laughs> so that I can try these techniques because I think they're really powerful and they're a way to use empathy as almost, he says it's almost like a magic weapon so that people start to become more cooperative, more docile, more interested. And he says, you, you get them, um, you, you convince them to do it your way, but, and they think they're doing it their way. So you talk to them into, they talk themselves into doing it your way, is the way he says it. And I'm excited about it. I love it. It's a new set of skills. So I see questions coming up, thanks to, oh, oh somebody, <laughs> Oh, I got a text earlier from someone that said, you okay? Because I shouted loudly, enjoy. <laughs> Hello, the lovely peoples. This is Marty, Martha, inviting you to a free masterclass that I have made called Five Paths to Your Purpose. Probably the most common question I get from people is, how do I find my purpose? Why don't I feel that I'm on purpose? Well, it turns out there are certain things you have to do to find your purpose, and I broke them down into five, and I made a little masterclass about it. So if you'd like to see it, just go to marthabeck.com purpose, and you will be able to watch it without any charge at all. Um, so Alora says, do psychopaths know they're psychopaths? What an interesting question. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It often depends on their IQ level. Sometimes they, if they got a, a very low cognitive ability, they don't really ever twig to it. But I saw a fascinating documentary once where a psychologist was interviewing a guy who was a, a 
an assassin for the mob. And he was like, I know I'm a psychopath and I don't know why. He's like, I can kill people. I can torture people to death while I'm eating a pizza. It's just no big deal. I, can you help me understand it? He was in prison. Creepy as F. But also really fascinating. But he fully knew he was a psychopath. And they can't stop it. And that's really unfortunate. I mean, maybe they can. I don't know. Uh, the problem is most of them don't want to. So, but yeah, they can know. So Donna says, is being a psychopath permanent or can they grow the skill of empathy? I'm going to hope that it can, that empathy can grow in. I mean, there are stories of people having massive breakthroughs, but by and large, because someone, anybody with a personality disorder, that is somebody who does not take responsibility for their own happiness or unhappiness. And these the triad falls into that group. Anybody who doesn't think that they need to do something to feel better, they don't have a, a very high prognosis for cure because each of us, now I'm going to get in back into my cosmological view. Each of us as a soul comes in saying, I'm going to figure this out, how to be in this human body. And if you drop the task of figuring it out and you say, that's not my job, someone else has to fix me, your odds of moving forward are very slim. So Margaret says, if they don't have that part, how do they pretend so well? They're unbelievably good mimics and they're keen observers. Like they'll be fascinated watching how people operate and then they will just play with them like a cat plays with a mouse. One of the characters in Shakespeare, um, I once read that the character of, character of Iago in Othello is a mistake Shakespeare made because Iago causes Othello to murder his wife. You know, he messes with people just because there's no, he has no motive, nothing to gain. And so this, this critic was saying there aren't, nobody would do that. But Shakespeare, being Shakespeare, nailed the psychopathic personality. And um, Iago through the whole play is like watching people and playing with people. And this is, um, often there will be a history of verbal abuse and even physical and sexual abuse. Um, just as the person is, as a psychopath, is testing his or her power. It's very, very creepy, as I said. It's like humanity at its worst. And I sometimes wonder if people choose at a soul level to come in as a psychopathic personality. I do not know. Big open question in my mind. But yeah, they're unbelievably good pretenders. Laura says, what creates empaths? Are empaths more likely to have fluid intelligence and experience moments of enlightenment? Oh, sorry. I think, you know, you could say that empaths are born just like sociopaths are, you know. But I do think that empaths learn by absorbing the stories of other people, learn to be more empathic, learn perspective taking, which is to be able to imagine the world from behind another person's eyes. And the more people you meet, the more your capacity to understand grows. And so, yes, much more fluid intelligence. Although somebody who's a psychopath who's really playing a game, who's got like six different lives running, they can have a lot of fluid intelligence as well. Their minds will be taken up by it a lot and they'll spend a lot of time kind of staring into the middle distance, trying to figure out how to balance all the lies because I just wrote about integrity, right? So I did a lot of research on what lying does to people. Messes with our brains. And secret keeping is even worse than lying for the brain. 
So the brain does not like it and um, probably gets somewhat fixated in there. Empaths can get fixated too on something that in Buddhism is called idiot compassion. And that is where you choose someone who has no goodwill toward anyone and you decide to treat them like a poor victim of this or that and they just, a psychopath loves that. Oh my God, I had someone come in, he'd sexually abused his daughter for years and years and he had, he, he didn't lie about it. He was like quite out in the open. She was my client and she brought him in and uh, it was fascinating to watch him. He just, he was like, you know, I think the real problem that we've had in our relationship is I haven't talked enough about myself. <laughs> the, the daughter and I just looked at each other and I was like, eh, this is not, your, your dad's not going to grow empathy at this point. He, he's a psychopath. Um, so she was able to like deal with it that way and set boundaries on the relationship that were appropriate. And he eventually went to prison. Okay, so Jessica says, you're telling me that I can treat difficult people like I work with animals? Hallelujah, I can do that. It is exactly animal training. The tone of what, the thing is, for someone with cognition, if you and I are negotiating, we both have sound minds, and you say, I'm sorry, what is it you said you wanted again? Part of me is going to go, why are they, why is she being that? Why are they being that way? Hmm. But a psychopath the tone of voice is so powerful because the neocortex really isn't in operation. So it is exactly like working with an animal. And it's actually like working with a reptile. So you've got the emotion, except for one thing. They love pride. Okay, so all three of these personality types and addicts are obsessed with their own esteem. Again, this is where the psychological and the spiritual crisscross because in Asian religions or philosophies, this is called ego, the self-serving uh, mind that cuts itself off from other beings and wants and grasps and, and hates. That's just pure ego. And to have their egos fed by a soothing tone of voice and the words, I'm sorry, and the reflection that says, you're the focus of my attention, that it's like they get hypnotized by it. It's really fascinating. And yeah, I love working with animals and so do most empaths, so do most codependents. So I'm sure you all have lots of practice. Yay. Except for dogs, they're codependent too. You, you really can't base it on dogs. Okay, so Marianne says, if people know they're good at the dark arts, can they still be derailed in conversation that way? Yes, this is what blew me away about this book. They really, they have a huge blind spot. They don't know how easy they are to manipulate. And because they're so like weird, like your mind just can't take it in. The last thing you want to do is say, oh, I'm sorry. Could you repeat that when they're being crazy? But if you do that, they're like, oh, this is what I've been waiting for my whole life. And they just get into it. I can't wait to try it. As I've said, I have to go like, I used to work with addicts, homeless addicts. I may have to go back and go to another methadone clinic and figure that out. Anyway, Allison said, is saying I'm sorry when you aren't submissive? It is, except that it, you know, how many times you bump against someone on the subway? You say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's a way of um, taking responsibility for yourself in a social situation. Are you sorry? Are you like deeply penitent? No, but you're using the phrase as a question. Like somebody says, the temperature today is, you might go, I'm sorry, could you say that again? It just means I didn't get it. 
I didn't get that. So it doesn't always mean you're in sackcloth and ashes. It just means you didn't understand and you want to understand. So uh, grounded underscore enlightenment says, what's the difference between a psychopath and a narcissist? A psychopath um, really wants to be pitied where a narcissist can't stand to be pitied, needs to be in power at all times, needs to display power, needs to be called the greatest, needs to have people shouting their name, needs to have constant praise, where a psychopath can be just fine as a sort of silent, maybe the butler, you know, but he's managing <clears throat> or they are managing the whole household without anyone knowing. So narcissists <clears throat> tend to be really out loud, where psychopaths may be out loud, but they may be very silent and you'll only know that they're there when they start to hurt you and you pity them. Okay. Brian says, can you say more about the tells? How do we spot the pitying and what other tells are there? Okay. So this is great. I've had so many people who had psychopathic parents because they tend to seek some kind of counseling and they'll start talking about a parent who is clearly without empathy. And I'll say, I think, I think your parent may fit into this diagnosis. Don't want to label everything, but it might help. And they say, oh no, she or he couldn't possibly be a psychopath. Let's say it's a woman. She cries all the time. She's so tenderhearted. And it's even more actually when it's a man. I've had women tell me, oh, my, my, my abusive husband or my father, they're so tenderhearted. They cry all the time. Like they're so soft and easily wounded. And people disrespect them and it just makes them cry. And then you say, has he ever cried for you? In fact, has, have you ever seen him cry for anyone except himself? Have you ever seen him seem tender-hearted in someone else's perspective? And they'll go, nobody cries all the time. <laughs> and so they end up pitying and caring for the, the psychopath. So the, the, and then there's one other thing and that it's what I call slippage. They start telling you things like I once had a business associate who, would, who kept telling me, I, yeah, I got this check for you. I'm sending it on. And then nothing would happen. And I'd email her and I'd say, you said the check was in the mail. And she'd go, oh yeah, I am so sorry. I don't know what happened. When I say the check's in the mail, the check's in the mail. A year later, I finally had to call my, uh, the person who was employing me and get and find out that they'd been paying this person all along and she'd been lying to me. But I felt this slippage. Like the facts weren't all working together. And that's actually what I wrote about in the, the path of integrity because it's or the way of integrity because it's about nothing feeling slippery. When you're in pure integrity, everything goes click. And let me tell you something, the more pure your own integrity, the faster you pick up a psychopath. It is, it gets really, really easy because the energy is so different. But if you're lying at all about anything, you're in that same slippery energy. So once you get really in integrity, the world becomes a much safer place. Great question, Brian. Okay, a couple more. I'll just keep going because I'm excited. Jessica says, in relationships where a loved one doesn't have a psychological disorder, I have a hard time apologizing when I'm not. I'm sorry. I am sorry that they're upset. Are you experimenting with these skills in ordinary relationship disagreements? Yes. And here's the reason why. If someone reasonable is yelling, is shouting, is doing something unfair that we perceive as, as unfair. 
by far the most likely thing, and, and you know this person's not a psychopath or a narcissist, if they're responding out of proportion to what you think they should, they've probably, you've probably triggered something that is stored in them as an experience of trauma. And it could be horrible trauma or it could just be a really painful emotional relationship, usually early in life. And what happens is, like I, I knew someone whose parents used to say, we're not angry, we're disappointed. Anyone who used the word disappointed around this guy, he would explode. And people were like, I was just disappointed that, you know, they, they're not renewing my show. And he'd be like, Rah! now, if they do that, they're not actually in their right minds. They're replaying a trauma and they are in that limbic system, fight or flight. Ah! The neocortex is not functioning. And so you use the same thing, gentle, soft, slow. I'm sorry. You seem really upset. You mirror, you label, um, and you bring it down, you bring it down. And again, it's not, I'm sorry, as in I did something wrong, but it's, I'm sorry, I don't understand. And it brings them out of that raging limbic system, reptilian brain, and then they can come online and start to trust you. And then you can get rapport and empathy. There's so much great stuff in Chris Voss's book about this. Um, and it works like magic when people are traumatized as well as when they're just plain crazy. Okay, last, last, last question for this week. How is secret keeping bad for the brain? Please say more about this. Well, you have to invent reality. This is what my whole book is about. If you're not telling the truth, then what, what's coming out of your mouth is something you had to make up. I got a secret for you. Real, and I'm not going to keep it. Reality is extremely complex. It is more complex than your brain. Like no matter how fabulous the human brain is, the universe is more complicated than anything you can make up. So if you're in harmony with reality and you're telling the truth as you see it and learning more and being more and more truthful, everything supports you. You don't have to invent anything up here. You're free to enjoy, to imagine, to love, to create. And the more you spend your time prevaricating, telling lies, keeping secrets, the more time you have to spend altering reality so you can spin things correctly for the people around you. You're trying to act like a psychopath when you're not, and it's really hard. <laughs> so all of this, I'm sorry, I'm just like so excited about this topic this week. And I am so grateful to you for coming and joining me and hanging out here. And I hope that you have like, somebody in your life you can practice on because suddenly once you know this stuff, it's no longer a burden, it's an opportunity. And that's how, that's how life is a win-win situation. So I love you all. Thank you so much for being here. See you again next week on The Gathering Room. For almost 30 years, I've been teaching people to do something that I call reading your internal compasses. I believe we are all born with direction-finding mechanisms that are inherent in us and will help us find our best destiny. Uh, a few years ago, though, I realized that a lot of people were getting very, very anxious. And this is true. Anxiety is going nuts all over the planet. So I spent five years researching and writing a book about how to read your compasses and lower the anxiety that's getting between you and your right life. And I'm very excited about the book. It's coming out in 2025. But I would love to teach you about it before the book comes out. So this summer, I'm doing a course called The Wayfinder's Compass 
moving beyond anxiety. And you can check it out by going to marthabeck.com slash compass. And we will have a fabulous time putting you on course for your North Star. It's a bewildering moment to be alive. That's why Martha Beck, me, and Rowan Mangan, me, created Bewildered, the wildly successful podcast for people trying to figure it out. Most of us are trying to fit society's expectations about how we should live, which is stressful and confusing. On Bewildered, we look at topics like perfectionism, what it means to have enough, anxiety, and creativity to see where the culture may be pushing us all away from the lives that truly fulfill us. If you're bewildered, if you want to think and you love to laugh, come join us. 